when I was in undergrad and uh, and I took a class at UMass Amherst, I took a film class there. I mean, I took lots of film classes at Hampshire, but one... I was worried you hadn't taken enough film classes, Ricky, so thank you for considering, clarifying. Considering, yeah, I am... Uh, I did take a lot of film classes. I am a professional, and I am qualified to host this uh, weekly podcast about <laughs> movies that came out uh, 30 years ago. But anyway, I was taking the class at UMass, and uh, one of the movies that we had to watch was Barton Fink. And... Um, I've always loved Barton Fink. Um, like every Coen Brothers movie, it gets better with every viewing. And um, but we're in this class, and uh, we're the teacher is asking us, like you know, what what we thought of the movie. You know, hey, very very open ended. What do you guys think of the movie? And this kid raises his hand, and he goes, he's like a very uh, University of Massachusetts kid. He raises his hand and he goes, you just, uh, please just for a second, say what that means to be a university of Massachusetts kid. He's like a mass hole. He's a mass hole. <laughs> you know, okay. he raises his hand. <clears throat> he raises his hand, he's like, yeah. So, um, John Goodman's the devil, right? <laughs> right. Like he's the, he's the devil. Right. Right. And the professor's like, that's one interpretation. That's one interpretation. Anybody else? He goes, no, no, no. But that's it. He's the <laughs> devil. Right? John Goodman is the devil. And the professor's like, like I said, that's one interpretation. There's no wrong interpretations here. And, um, you know, obviously with the fire on the walls and the sweating and the murder, it could very well seem like, you know, he is the devil. And he goes, well, what do you mean seem? He <laughs> is the devil. Like he would not fucking drop it. And the, the teacher was like one of those situations where he had to be like, uh, he had to be like, no, okay, that's enough. No more. Like, stop. And the kid got really offended and hurt. And um, I was always kind of like, what a ridiculous interpretation that's so literal and kind of stupid. Because, uh, but then upon watching the movie again, I mean, it's, it's, it's really, he wasn't that far off. Yeah. I think they are intentionally playing with that, that imagery. Yeah, I mean, that is, like, stupid, and I think that's so funny in class when the teacher has to tell somebody to shut up, which, like, uh, in all honesty, all teachers should do a lot faster. They let a people talk faster. way too much. But, like, having said that, yo, John Goodman is the devil in this movie, right? I mean, like, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, he's the fucking devil, right? <laughs> The writer is king here at Capital Pictures. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bond? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy a song. Is that more than one thing? Okay. Welcome to the podcast called 30 Years Later, where me, Ricky Camilleri, and this other guy that I'm looking at via my webcam and my screen, his name is Chris Chafin. Hi, everybody. Yeah, hi. And uh, to be clear to anybody who uh, has never met us in person, which I don't really know if there's anybody that listens to this podcast <laughs> who hasn't, to be honest with you. Uh, occasionally, we, occasionally. We both wear clear glasses and have mustaches. And um, so oftentimes it's like not looking into a mirror, but looking into something that is like 
It's just when, like a kind of a like what could have been kind. And it's not a mirror. Yeah, it's right. just like a slightly alternate universe. That's what it's like. Yeah. Um, and speaking of alternate universes, today we're talking about uh, the Cohen brothers. Joel, that is Joel and Ethan Cohen, uh, writers, directors, editors, producers. Um, their 1991 film Barton Fink released on August 21st. Um, prior to that, in May of 1991, it won the Palm at Cannes, along with, and which is unprecedented, the Best Director and Best Actor Award. It was a rare sweep. It often doesn't happen at Cannes because the judges like to award, uh, like to spotlight different films, but it won both the Grand Prize, the Palme d'Or, and as well as uh, Best Director and Actor. It's also their first movie with their famed cinematographer, Roger Deakins, who went on to shoot everything up until, I believe maybe inside Lewin Davis. Um, I don't think Deacon shot uh, inside Lewin Davis. And I think that was maybe when, when they started working with someone else. Um, well, currently Joel works with someone else. Ethan has stopped making movies and seems like he may stop making movies forever. seems like he's over that bullshit. Must be nice Barton, to be over it. It must be, it must've been nice to get the chance to make 20 something films and to walk away from it what a life prior to working with deacons they worked with barry sonnenfeld who shot miller's crossing uh blood simple and raising arizona uh one of the ways that barton fink got made is that the cohen brothers in the midst of making miller's crossing of writing miller's miller's crossing they got really frustrated and sort of stuck with the story and in order to wash their brains of everything that they were stuck with on miller's crossing they wrote barton fink in a few weeks and as soon as they were done editing or shooting Miller's Crossing, they went and they shot Barton Fink. And um, Barton Fink had a $9 million budget. That's fucking insane. That is fucking it insane. Shot for, it shot for eight weeks. <laughs> like it, had like, it had like a 40-day shooting schedule. That is so insane. Like For a movie like this to have a budget oh, like that. God. $9 million. Yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't, I mean, it looks fantastic, but there are things like the fire in the at the end of the movie with John Goodman, where you can see the gas on the wall. You know what I mean? Yes. You can see the, the thing blowing it, but even, but that kind of looks cool in, it, in in its own way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ricky, um, I want to talk about this. This is like one of the main things I want to talk about with this movie is the fact that it was made. That's the circumstances of it getting written. I think that that tells you like everything, everything about the movie is in that little story because it's the kind of thing you can just feel the Coen brothers, especially I think in the beginning, like the first act, they're just, having a lot of fun you know like every yeah. detail is fun and and every moment from moment to moment they just seem to be saying like okay well what's like something fun we could do in this next moment you know and it's like it makes it such a pleasure to watch <laughs> so. well even and when you talk about details like even there are so many details in the movie that I think people like to read into and think are symbolic in some way but in actuality I think are just them being like what like this is set in 1941. What was going on here? Of course, Barton goes to a USO show, yeah, right? right? And then like when he's watching the dailies for the wrestling movie and that guy keeps going, I will destroy you. When they put the dailies in front of the camera, it said it's two days after Pearl Harbor was bombed is the date of the dailies that he's, that, that they shot that he's watching. So right. it's this idea that, you know, like world war two is happening or is like right around the corner. Fascism is looming but it doesn't really deal with any of those things head on. It's all just texture and, and sort of like and 
peripheral language and the way people are acting or it's symbolic. A lot of people say that Goodman at the end of the movie is sort of like the, a symbol of like, I mean, he says Heil Hitler when he shoots a cop, but again, it's delivered as a punchline yeah. for the time period. So it's hard to be like, yeah, this is really about the rise of you know Nazism and, and in Hollywood in 1941. It's like, kind of, I guess, but it's also a joke. And it's like, this all this stuff you're talking about, about Pearl Harbor going on during the events of the movie. I mean, so Joel and Ethan Cohen are two stuck screenwriters who write a script about a stuck screenwriter. And it's mostly about like, oh, all the people that we work with in Hollywood are so wacky, you know? And I just feel like that's another piece of that puzzle, which is them just being like, look, literally World War II could be happening and the only thing anyone would care about is like, what is the script for the wrestling picture? Right, you know, yeah. like it wouldn't even <laughs> come up at all, you know, with anyone. Right, because it's like, is it like the Gulf War is possibly looming like while this... Yeah, uh, I think it had already happened. I think the Gulf. Well, yeah, no. While they're working right. on it, yeah, probably. So you're like, so you're like pitching stories in in Hollywood meetings. You're going to all these things, and like, yeah, no one's talking about anything. Which I've always said, like, when I was young and in the '90s, I had wished that people cared more about politics and what was going on in current events. And and now that it seems like people do, I wish they'd all shut up. That sucks. Actually, it's awful. Yeah. This is my uniform. Um, Barton Fink is, uh, as you were saying, it's about a screenwriter who's stuck trying to write uh, a movie. What it's a, what it is is uh, John Turturro plays a young playwright by the name of Barton Fink, who's just had major success on the stage in New York City with his first play um, that is very much a Clifford Odets leftist uh, play that he keeps referring to as a pl- theater for the common man. The fishmongers. Uh, yeah, the fishmongers. Get your fish! Fresh fish! Um, and you won't be getting a postcard where he's going. Um, and he gets he gets brought out to L.A. to write a screenplay for a B-movie, a, specifically a Wallace Beery wrestling picture, which he has no idea how to do, is terrified of doing, cannot write, and it becomes far more existential as he you know wonders if he was ever a good writer to begin with, to which the movie, I think, very specifically says no. <laughs> he had <laughs> one good story to tell. Um, yeah, while he's staying at this hotel, he uh, meets John Goodman, who's staying at the hotel as well, who is absolutely hilarious and um, is this uh, insurance salesman that's staying next to Barton. And then to seek inspiration, Barton also meets with... Um, uh, Judy Davis and John P. Mahoney. John P. Mahoney playing a Faulkner-like uh, character who, um, you know, lived Faulkner himself, a brilliant writer that ended up moving to Hollywood and becoming a drunk. Uh, Judy Davis plays his uh, secretary who also wrote a lot of his books and screenplays. And um, then, you know, from there, uh, he has trouble writing the movie. Judy Davis's character, he wakes up next to Judy Davis's character who dies. John Goodman apparently takes care of it. The movie sort of descends into a nightmare yeah. for 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 Barton that also ends up with him finishing his script only to find that nobody care nobody likes it. <laughs> <laughs> and he thinks it's something he keeps referring to it as something beautiful, but we the audience know that it's kind of the same play. The script is the play that he wrote before because the all we hear are the cops who are interrogating him. Uh, reading his his script when when they walk when he walks in and it's the same lines from his play the cry of the fishmongers is in the distance <laughs> like, 
this is all this motherfucker knows. And like, this is what he thinks the common man is. And this is as, as deep as his knowledge is about the common man. And he will not stop talking about the common man. One of the running jokes of the movie is that John Goodman's character is actually, you know, a quote unquote common man. And as he's referred to by Barton, but Barton will not listen to anything. uh, Goodman says he keeps saying, uh, one, it's really one of the funniest running jokes in a Coen Brothers movie is that Goodman keeps saying, uh, I sure could tell you some stories. I'm sure you could. Well, let me tell you. And as soon as he's about to tell a story, Barton interrupts with, I'm sure you could, Charlie. I'm sure you could. And that's what this is about. It's the theater for the common man. And he starts People ranting. like you, Charlie. And uh, they cut to Goodman's face whenever he gets cut off is just so beautiful and funny, oh, you know. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, that's the plot of the movie. My question for you, Chris, is um, do you think that Barton is possibly the Coen's, one of the Coen's most unlikable leads? <laughs> yeah, it is true. Usually they have somebody who is more like sympathetically tragic as the lead character. Well, I mean, I guess it, what do you, who is the lead in Fargo? I mean, Francis McDormand, I guess, but for a long time, it seems like it's William H. Macy. And like, he's right, for the first, you know, for the first act, it's Macy. And then, then act two, McDormand shows up. Um, yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, I, I guess that's true. They often deal with unlikable characters, but there's something about Barton that is so pretentious. Yeah, he's and, and like the joke is on him. Like he's not yes. like a victim. It's like that. It's like it, it's all about his hubris. And I think, you know, probably that has to do with him being an analog for them. Like so when if they're going to put themselves in a movie, it's like they're going to be the bad guys. You know, they're like the people who don't really know what they're doing. Who like think that they're so great, but like actually they're like risable and everything they do is ridiculous. And I mean, I just feel like that tells you something about their worldview and their view of themselves. And I, I identified with that pretty hard. Are you a writer, Mr. Fink? Actually, I'm writing for the pictures now. Like one of the things that I really love about this movie is it really captures something that I run into in my own life. And I, and I think that it is a thing for people who are like professional writers of one kind or another. And like, you know, I'm not the most successful writer in the world, obviously, but there's this kind of the, the like the executive in Barton Fink, it's basically like Barton is a hot playwright who wrote this play. And so he wants him to come out to LA and write movies for him. And he gives him a wrestling movie to write. And Barton's like, well, I, I don't know anything about that. And he's like, Oh, you'll figure it out. Like when you're a writer, people think like, it's like being a carpenter or something. It's like, Oh, you know how to do writing, like write this kind of thing. And you go like, no, actually I only know how to write this one kind of thing. And the people are like, don't be ridiculous. Of course you can do it. But like, in fact, like, no, I cannot. <laughs> like I really actually can't. And it's like the scariest thing in the world because you know, and this movie does such a great job of Barton has all these meetings with the executive where he's like, I have so much faith in you. <laughs> and he's literally like kissing Barton's feet. And Barton knows that he does not, know how to do this thing that he's supposed to do and I, I it's something that's so unique to writing i feel like it's like i i it's also tony shalu being like broad strokes it's broad strokes you're thinking too hard about this fink broad strokes it's like you can't you can't you can't do that you know but some people can and i think a lot of successful people can yeah that barton has no idea how to do this but he also doesn't know he even says at one point in the middle of the movie, a lot of writers only have one story to tell and then they get it out and they're, they, 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 have, they don't have it anymore. And we see that he does only have one story to tell. 
It's terrifying, you know? And I think that that's pretty common. I mean, when I was a music publicist, I used to think that all the time about bands that I would work with. I would be like, you know, they had like one good record in them and like, they should just stop. <laughs> like, but you just kind of can't because you have to, you build a career and you become famous and you get more money for the stuff that's worse, you know? And so it incentivizes you to just figure out some way to make some impression of the kind of thing you're famous for. And it's usually really bad, you know? But that's like the way that the creative industries work. I'm a writer, you monsters! I create! I create for a living! What do you? What did you think of the um, like the most anti-Semitic character in the movie? Uh, well, there's the, the most anti-Semitic characters are the cops, yeah. but they're only in it briefly. But the Jewish studio executive right. or studio head, played by Michael Lerner, I believe his name is. Yeah, I mean, isn't that a thing about the early Hollywood executives? Is that they were all Jewish, but they all tried so hard to pretend not to be Jewish because of anti-Semitism that they came back around to like being anti-Semites themselves. Not all of them, but like some of them, and in some situations, that seems to be what they're selling in the with the movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's all true. Like W. B. Mayer is maybe the person I'm thinking of. Like, I don't right. really remember any facts, but I think that this is true. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty funny and it's pretty interesting that like at first and the way they tell you he's Jewish is just kind of like you just know that early Hollywood executives were all Jewish. And then he says something at the very beginning. He's like, oh, I'm from New York. Well, Minsk, if you want to be technical. And it's like, that's how you know he's Jewish, you know. But then later on, he's yelling at Barton about his like, what does he say? Like his Jew nonsense or something like that. He uses the K word a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a lot. What does he say in that first meeting where he keeps like he keeps like saying something and then like undercutting what he said immediately after that, where it's like you just did it, where he's like, I'm thinking, well, Mint actually, but then he keeps doing this other thing where he's like, oh, I don't want to get into the personal details. Well, I don't care. Actually, what happened to him was uh, he did this, this, and that, you know. And he's like, uh, but you know, it's a wrestling picture. It should be like uh, he's got an orphan or he's got a dame. Uh, listen to me. I'm trying to tell you how to write. You're the genius. You know how to write. And then Barton is like maybe it's both and he like clearly gets worried <laughs> that Barton doesn't know what he's doing it's pretty funny and it, i mean you know but you have to indict the system as well like they couldn't just show him a fucking movie like they couldn't get it together to show him one wrestling movie or give him one previous script of a wrestling movie to just make a copy of you know right all they did was show him dailies which would be even like, more confusing the most chaotic and confusing thing you could possibly watch the dailies for a movie I'm gonna destroy you! I'm gonna destroy you! Slamming him down to the mat over and over again, like... What do you think about the way in which they operate off of an assumption that uh, of what the audience knows of this setting and time period, right? Like, there is this kind of, like, like if you know a lot about Hollywood and the rise of anti-Semitism at, at this time, and about world war two and, and and what was William happening Faulkner's there's so much more in hollywood and yeah yeah there's so much more baked into the film that you can take out of it whereas if like you're just a viewer like i, I you know I, I don't know if you'd be able to make heads or tails of the movie i respectfully disagree and this is why i think this is like such a classic movie in a lot of ways is you don't re you get a richer viewing experience if you know all that stuff but if you don't know all that stuff you can just be like yo john goodman's the devil like he's running around <laughs> there's fire everywhere he cuts up this girl you know and like i think that stuff is engaging on its own like it's viscerally engaging 
you know, running down the, the hallway, there's fire everywhere. He's shooting a shotgun. And, and like, don't forget, this is like in the 90s at the dawn of this kind of like violent indie cinema. So it's like, it looks right. cool. People get shot with shotguns. People get their heads cut off. There's like blood everywhere. And like, really, all that stuff is pretty incidental to the movie. And like, not really what the movie is like, quote unquote, about. But it, it does contain all that stuff. And I think if you can engage on that level pretty successfully with this movie. How many times has, was this the first time you'd seen this movie? No, I've seen it. I, I had seen it before, but actually I didn't see it until a couple of years ago. So what did you think the first time you saw it a couple of years ago? Do you remember? What did I think about the movie? Well, it's yeah. it's interesting. Um, and this is, again, ties back to this, like, they wrote it to have fun thing. But mm -hmm. I, I had always known it like you as like a film school movie. Like, a, you know, you see pictures of it in the film textbook and you read about Roger Deakins and you read about like symbolism in film. This is like one of the movies people used to talk about all the time, like in the early 2000s. Um, but I think if you, what I think is great about the movie is I don't necessarily think that all of the symbolism is like completely thought out or like completely, no, neither do I. completely makes sense from like one part of the movie to another part of the movie. It's just like, oh, in this part of the movie, this is going on and it's different in this other part of the movie. So what I was surprised by was how like kind of loose it is in a certain way, like how much fun it seems to be having, how loose it is. Whereas I expected a kind of like formalist, like very symbolic film about, I don't know what exactly, you know, where I was like, oh, it's just like a movie about making movies and like, you know, zany film executives and like hot broads and, you know, like, oh, it's like, I mean, and there certainly are mm -hmm. parts that are like, even to this, to I couldn't exactly tell you what's going on, but I think it's mostly just having fun, you know. And, and I think to the Coen brothers, part of what fun is, is little intellectual puzzles that like don't necessarily have a solution, but they're just like fun little puzzles. Yeah, I mean, that's I, I, I think that's why this is one of their movies that often gets compared to Lynch. Like something's going on, but what? And do they do they clearly I mean, they've always said that their movies aren't what you see is yeah. what you get and they're not up for interpretation. Right. But that's also something you would say. Wallace Spirit, wrestling picture. What do you need? A roadmap? So to you then, if you if if you were if a gun was put to your head, because honestly that's the only way I would answer this question. If a gun was put to your head, what would you say the the end of the movie, you know, yeah, symbolizes? I mean, it's pretty tough. I think that like basically after the first act, kind of maybe a little bit less than the first act, it's like you know, you go to this hotel in LA and Steve Buscemi is like coming out of the floor, you know, it's like very strongly implying that it's like hell or purgatory or the afterlife or something. Right. And, um, it's kind of like Barton has entered into this kind of, you know, purgatorial hellish existence. And then it's like, he does manage to finish his script and he has this meeting where he gets screamed at, but then he's like, somehow stumbles into his dream world his like fantasy existence and it's kind of like saying despite everything he's redeemed himself in some way by like number one actually writing something and number two like writing something that didn't please his boss but that pissed off his boss and like 
you know, at the end of the day, that's all you can really do is like do your job and do it in a way you think is good. And like, so as a reward, Barton is in this fucking crazy, you know, heaven with some, with the woman from his poster. So there is, so it is an escape from hell and a landing in heaven. But but then again, I think it's all squishy and I think it all is just like, you could just kind of say like, oh wow, what a coincidence, you know? Like, I think it's, I I don't think it's a hundred percent and the Coen brothers don't intend it to be a hundred percent, but I think like generally thematically, like that's kind of what's going on. I mean, I guess you could also say like he's dead or, you know, I don't know, you know what? The wave crashing on the rock at the end of the first act is his plane to Los Angeles crashing. And then the rest of the movie is him in the afterlife. You know, I don't I don't know. You know, yeah, I don't know. I I, I, I always felt like you could over. I, I think I'm a simpleton. I, I yes, go on. Yeah. And I don't agree. Uh, and I think like when it comes to this movie and oftentimes when it comes to Lynch, I just kind of take them at face value and on the surface and I sort of let them wash over me and think they're abstract and beautiful and, and, and very well made. And I just enjoy rewatching them, not because I'm pulling more meaning out of the images, but maybe just because the images don't mean that much to me and I can pull my own interpretations out if I want to. I mean, I, I totally to. agree. But they're not, but they're not, they're not, there's nothing literal happening. Then like when something is, so literal it can be kind of dead and there's less to take I mean, from I it. totally agree in a lot of ways and I do think that there is I think that there's value in consuming movies that way and I think a lot of people who make movies make it make movies that way it's like well this is just a poetic image you know and I think it's freighted with a lot of meaning but like what meaning exactly and they would say like well to me it kind of means this but you know not 100% and maybe to you it means something different but it's just like it's just something that speaks to you and calls to you and like hits an emotional chord in you you know and I think that that's kind of people that make up like you know book length things about what things mean it's like I mean kind of but kind of it's bullshit and you, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like you, yeah, you also of. know it's bullshit, but it's like you're making an argument for it, you know. And like you can make a good argument for lots of stuff, but like deep down, you know, you're it's kind of bullshit. Like The Shining, right? Right. How, yeah. H- how much of The Shining has like the 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 waiter sucking the bear off, or right. you know, vice versa? I don't remember. I, yeah, I don't think that fucking means anything. I just think it's like, wouldn't that be weird? You know, like I think it's. Was wouldn't it be evocative in some way? And it's pulling together things from Stanley Kubrick's childhood and like his subconscious of like, you know, and it's 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 somehow freighted with some kind of meaning. But I don't think that it's like the bear is capitalism. You know, it's like exactly. I just don't I don't believe in that kind of stuff. I really don't. Or even with something like The Master, which is like a much like a slightly more literal movie in terms of the events that take place. And the, the, the characters, by the time you get to the end, there is this element of like, why this, why this song between these two men, why this scene, why this ending? And it makes it rewatchable to me because I don't really know the direct obvious answer. And I think that's an intentional thing by the, by the filmmaker. Well, Barton, you might say I saw peace of mind. Who's your favorite performance in the movie? Oh man. I mean, I really like John uh, Mahoney as Faulkner or whatever. His name is WP something. He's amazing. That opening scene in the um, in the uh, uh, bathroom when he's holding the flask and he, he says yeah. social lubricant and then Barton says no. And then he 
knocks back a very so long much. swig in this very like tight dignified stance like this dandy yeah. stance well and that his open that he's i mean of course he's put down a handkerchief on the floor of the bathroom to kneel on as he throws up which he's throwing up like <laughs> so violently and grossly and then he comes out and they're washing their hands next to each other and he says sorry about the odor yeah. <laughs> what an amazing line what an amazing line reading it's like I, 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 it's brilliant. It's just brilliant. You know, <laughs> I really like it. But well, at the I, same what, time, we can't forget Totoro. I mean, of course, right? Totoro, it has to have so much going on. But it's like in a certain way, Barton Fink, he's not one note, but he's like maybe two note, you know? Like he's, he's often the person who's going like, what? <laughs> you know? Yeah, but the scene where after he finishes his script and then, and goes to the USO show and is dancing is outrageously funny. His dance this is This is insane. my uniform. Yeah. I'm a writer. <laughs> Yeah. And the guy, the guy's like totally nice, right? The guy's like, yeah. "Hey, come on, man! I'm shipping out tomorrow. Let the guy have let 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 the navy have a dance." He's like, "You fucking idiot!" <laughs> gets in his I mean, face. that's why the scene is so great. It's because the guy is so guileless and so polite, and Barton is just like such a monster to him, you know. And somebody else like rightfully steps in and beats and kicks the shit out of Barton, like. Barton like really deserves to get beat up in that scene. He's acting completely insane. Like as much as he has acted insane for the entire rest of the movie. And I mean, I do like some of the stuff, like some of the specifics, like the art world specifics about this, this movie. I mean, there are parts of it. I don't know if you saw um, the 40 year old version, the like rod a blank movie from last yeah. year. Yeah. I liked it. I really like that movie. I think it's so great. And I think it's one of the best movies I've seen about like the arts establishment in New York city. But like this movie has some great stuff of that too, because like Barton has this play, it's a big success. And he's like, goes to the, so this dinner immediately after the performance with these completely insane European millionaires where it's like, they're at some fancy restaurant and Barton is like yelling at them about like the common man. And then he goes <laughs> into to talk to his agent while wearing a tuxedo at an even more secret bar inside of this fancy restaurant. And he's like, I just want to serve the common man. And you're like, yeah, you fucking look like it, Barton in your tuxedo in this fucking in the Ritz. Like, well, even his, even the, even the agent like rolls his eyes at him. There's a like, there's a great, it's so subtle, but like Barton is talking about the common man and it cuts to the agent and he looks away to the bar because he just like doesn't want to listen to, he doesn't even want to like address Barton's bullshit. And like, yeah. it's funny because I think if you watch that movie when you're like 19 or 20 or like, or when I was when I saw it, I was like, yeah, man, this guy's an asshole. Why doesn't he want to work with Barton here? And like watching it now, it's like, God, Barton's such a fucking idiot. He's such a fucking idiot. And he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. You know, it's like, I mean, at the same time, his agent is giving him bad advice. Barton is right. He should stay in New York. Like he's super hot in New York at that second. Like definitely he should not have left. But you know, it's a lot of money to go to LA. Like I get it. You know? Yeah, the agent's like, come on, we're going to, we're going to make a mint here. Yeah, and I get like whatever, 20%. So like go do it. I don't give a shit how it goes, you know. Um <clears throat> Goodman is also unbelievable. 
Well, John Goodman is doing, I mean, obviously, yes, John Goodman, and he's probably the, him or Totoro, or the, like, people, most people would mention as the stars of the movie, right? Yeah. Because he's doing so much in this movie. He's portraying the whole range of emotions that he gets to show often only in Coen Brothers movies, where he's, like, friendly, dopey, sinister, violent, sweet and and kind of like weirdly sexual like all all at the same time the wrestling scene is so funny there's like the slow pushing from over goodman's shoulder like uh barton's point of view looking down on goodman who's on all fours telling barton to like wrap his arms around him so they can wrestle for a minute and it's just like goodman looking up at the camera going come on Come on, Barton. He's like, come on. Raising he's like, his eyebrows and grinning and the camera's like, going closer and closer on him. He's you know? like, he's calling Barton the way that like I call my dog from her. Like, come here. <laughs> come on. <laughs> come on. Come on. Yeah. But it is also like, it is sexual also, you know, and it gets brought up again later in the movie where they're like, oh, you guys got some weird sex thing. And he's like, no, we wrestled. That's right. That's right. Which is another thing that I think if you were trying to be literal with this movie, you could be like, Oh, and then like Barton killed this woman in his bed. Clearly Barton is like attracted to Charlie or Charlie's attracted to him. And they like killed this woman because they didn't, right. you know, yeah. but I just don't think or it's symbolic. Movie... It's he's symbolically killing the female in order to embrace the male. But I don't think the movie wants that. Like, I, no, I, I, I don't think so either. No. The idea that it was written in three weeks to me means that like that stuff isn't particularly thought out. It's more like, Oh, this is a fun world, and like, let's just put everything into the scene that we want to see. Exactly, yeah. exactly, and that's what I think is so great about the film is it's like the the people who made it had fun making it, and and they're oh, smart yeah. people having smart fun, and like it's 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 a it's engaging for that reason, you know. What's your favorite Coen Brothers movie? Oh shit, Ricky, I don't know, man. I mean, this one's pretty great. I mean, they're all, you know, they're all di- they're all great in their own ways, you know. I will say, like, cop uh, out, cop out answer. Uh, what's your favorite Coen Brothers movie? I have to fucking look at a list of them. I couldn't even really name them all on top of my head. Um, it's hard because you don't want to go with the obvious ones, but the obvious ones are also fucking great. Like, Fargo is amazing. Big Lebowski is amazing. Yeah. Um, I really, the last time I watched Inside Lewin Davis, I really loved it. That's a really good movie, and it's so it's so impressive to make a movie like Inside Lewin Davis at the age the Coen brothers were when they made that movie. Like yeah. I know it's set in the sixties, but the way that it's like connected with being a young person is, is amazing. It really right. is. I feel at my age, like I don't have that connection with being a young person, a young and, person in the midst of recognizing your mediocrity. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, right. Raising Arizona. I've seen a trillion times of yeah. course, you know, and I even really, I enjoy, Oh my God. When, you know, I, there was, are when I was a teen, in- I used to watch Hudsucker proxy. Like, all the time never got in that's my least favorite i've never I know it's like a very twee 90s like formalist kind of movie of theirs i just never got into it i've always wanted to it just hasn't hooked me in the same way that i love raising arizona i think that the last 15 minutes of arizona of raising arizona kind of runs out of steam yeah i agree i think like it it's just too it's just too cartoonish to sort of keep up with itself by, by the, by the last 10, 15 minutes. But the the first 40 minutes of raising Arizona are like 
comedy perfection, especially the opening, the 10 minute opening scene. It's fantastic. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. I mean, dude, Ricky, like I like the ballad of Buster Scruggs. Like I think that's oh, a yeah, good I like movie. That a lot. I like that a lot. I thought that was I great. Extremely watchable. And like also, um, I know this people. A make serious fun of man. A serious man is great. I mean, with uh, what's his face? Michael Stuhlbarg. Like a fantastic, fantastic person to have in your movie. Yeah. A movie people make fun of all the time that I actually think is good is Intolerable Cruelty. Like, never seen it. It's good. It's a, just a, it's a it's a Howard Hawks movie. They got to make a Howard Hawks movie and they made it with uh, you know George Clooney and what's her face Catherine Zeta Jones. Like, it's just a witty repartee banter movie from the forties. That's all that it is, and it's fun. They're just having fun making it, and it is a successful version of one of those movies. I love Burn After Reading, the most prescient uh, movie about <laughs> American uh, spy agencies. Yeah, it turns out they're all super smart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, what do we have, are, are we missing anything that, that no, we should talk about from the movie? I mean, I'm sure there's dude. lots of details from the movie that we're not that we're not covering. Like you said, Steve Buscemi is in it, and he rises up out of the floor. Michael Lerner, uh, John Polito who was in Miller's Crossing plays a, um, you know, he's the guy in Miller's Crossing. If you've ever seen it, that is uh, the other mob boss who says, I always tell my boys, always put one in the head. Um, and uh, he plays the sort of peon to Michael Lerner. Tony Shalhoub plays yeah, a, 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 an executive at the, at the studio Capital I'm pictures. Angry Tony Shalhoub. Yeah. Thin as all hell. Yeah. And he's got a great, great line, which is uh Barton is like, I don't know who to talk to for, for help. And they're in a restaurant. And Tony Shalhoub goes, ask a writer, throw a rock in here. You'll hit, you're bound to hit one. And then he gets up and throws his napkin on the table. And goes, do me a favor. Fink, throw it hard. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, um, fantastic. Fantastic stuff. All right. So you want to do the three questions? Okay. So it's time for our three questions that we ask at the end of every, uh, one of these little ditties that we do. The first question is what was your favorite part of the movie? What, what is your favorite part of the movie, Chris? Uh, well, I think there, I kind of have two to be a cop out. One of them is the, uh, the, the picnic that, uh, John Turturro has with John Mahoney where they're like having this where he says like oh I could smell the lilacs and they're doing it in like the median of a highway in Los Angeles which it just <laughs> goes completely unremarked upon which I think is fucking brilliant and so funny and you could almost kind of miss it you know which, I think I did yeah yeah, because it, it's just like it. Because behind them, it does kind of look like the woods, but they're very careful to show you in the reverse shot that they're in the middle of the road. You know, like <laughs> I think that's super funny. Um, and also, by the way, I think that's the tunnel from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Is that correct? I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. The other, my other favorite thing is you mentioned this earlier, but. <laughs> The way that John Goodman, and I don't know, you know, filmmaking, it's a collaborative art. Who knows if this is in the script or in the direction or coming directly from John Goodman? I have no idea. But like, okay, so the scene, as it must appear on the page, is John Goodman is about to shoot this. He has already murdered one police officer. He's already shot this other police officer. Fires everywhere. The He's about to shoot this guy in the head with a shotgun. And the line is Heil Hitler. Okay, that's the line. The way that John Goodman delivers 
saying Heil Hitler is so bizarre and hilarious. And like, I don't know how they arrived at this, but he like whispers it as kind of like, like he's going like, hmm, hello there. Like that's how he says Heil Hitler. And it's very effective and very odd. And I really like it. Heil Hitler. Yeah, I don't even know how you would describe that way of saying it to somebody. It's almost like a throwaway, you right. know? And yeah. how you would get that actor to, to 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 do a read on it like that. It's almost like Fay, like he's doing something Fay when he says it. Heil Hitler. It's kind of <laughs> so like so weird. It's yeah. so strange and it's so interesting. <laughs> One of the things that you didn't mention about the previous scene that the the highway median that I want to talk that mm-hmm. I love about that scene is um how much of a weenie uh, Barton is in that moment (laughs) where like when John P when John Mahoney um, hits Judy Davis and then walks away, Barton walks up and goes, did he hit you? That bastard. Don't get me wrong. He's a fine writer, (laughs) (laughs) but he like, he does that. He does that, that weenie thing where he like tells the woman how upset he is about it and how wrong this man is for his behavior, but then does nothing to 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 the man and like judy davis plays it really well which is that here is another man putting weight on me for this horrible thing that just happened right you're like just fucking leave me alone barton please yeah barton just leave her the fuck alone like stop seeking validation because you think it was bad we've got a whole thing going on it doesn't involve you which is what she basically says yeah he's like i want you to know i'm mad about this not that i'm gonna do anything yeah which is basically which is exactly expressed and like but he's a fine writer (laughs) that's pretty funny what's what's your favorite part of the movie ricky um it's a very it's a very maybe it's a stupid favorite part but i love it it's very small it's the first detective scene and how like over the top 1940s detectives they they are and there's a, a a line where uh, Barton says something about one of the people they're asking for. I don't remember if it's Judy Davis or, or John Goodman. And one of the detectives goes, uh, usually this is when I say anything you can remember would be helpful, but that is not helpful. And the other, de- and the other detective goes, do you see him writing it down? He's not writing it down. It's like, <laughs> I'm like I loved those lines. um and for some reason you know i choose i chose that randomly as my favorite part because i love every moment i mean everything is great obviously it's a beautifully photographed like the script is amazing yeah and like we've said a number of my favorite parts already and so i just chose a part at random that we hadn't said to be my favorite to be my favorite part you know um i mean you know how i think we're not saying it because it's the most obvious thing but it's like probably actually is our favorite part which is John Goodman running down a flaming hallway with a shotgun screaming, I'll show you the life of the mind. I'll show you the life of the mind, which the movie doesn't like, you know, you don't necessarily know what the fuck he's talking about, you know, like, right. All, all that we know is that, uh, Barton at one point has said to him, the life of the mind, like something about the life of the mind. And, and, and Goodman has kind of taken that to be his, his, his evil mantra. (laughs) And yeah, fire racing down the hallway as he runs down the hallway, like screaming, I'll show you the life of the mind. I mean, instantly iconic. It's the most iconic thing from the movie, probably. Followed by him going, Hal Hitler, as he shoots, as he shoots a, co- a screaming cop in the face with a shotgun. 
And then he, the next, last time you see him is he's struggling to open his door as the hallway is burning around him <laughs> right. to go back into his bedroom. <laughs> um, what is the most, uh, this movie came out in 1991. You know, every movie that we're going to talk about by and large was released in the nineties. Um, so what was the most nineties thing about this movie? Well, you know, certainly in a lot of ways, the Coen brothers are transcend their era, but in, you know, other ways they don't. So, I mean, what is, what is the most nineties about this movie? You have to say that it's like a gritty, magical, arty, violent, independent movie about the business of making movies. Like it's just something very, and this, obviously this movie is pre Pulp Fiction, you know, but there's something about it that it fit very neatly into this world of like, 90s independent movies and i think that is why like we were studying it in college you know it's like it's very it's very strange to me that quentin tarantino is not like the coen brothers don't often come up in conversation about quentin tarantino of course they were making like crime movies that were art you know and he doesn't bring them up in convert in 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 conversations either as an influence which is very strange to me because they in my mind with starting with Blood Simple and then with Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink, we're already kind of doing a like, you know, v- brutal violence mixed with like gratuitous violence mixed with humor. Right. Which is like his whole thing. And all of these movies were extremely popular, especially among the kind of like, you know, art house set that Quentin Tarantino would have been, you know, Hollywood people. Like, it's insane to act like, like these wouldn't have been an, an influence on him. The scene in, um, you know, the the sh- shooting Marvin in the face in, in Pulp Fiction could v- very much be in a Coen Brothers movie. It would just be played much differently. Right. It would be... Well, I it don't know. I be, feel like in a Coen Brothers movie, they could play it like 10 different ways. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, there would be a sense of fear in it, right? And I don't think people... I think the difference between the Coens and, and, and Quentin Tarantino is like, Quentin Tarantino, you know to laugh. The Coens don't really tell you and they do a lot to sort of deadpan and undercut the jokes. No, just all the characters are taking the things that are happening to them very seriously and reacting very, you know, like grounded in reality. Like they're in these incredibly insane situations, but acting real. Whereas in a Tarantino movie, the people are kind of cartoon characters. They're movie characters, you know? Yeah. Oh shit. I shot Marvin in the face. (laughs) What the fuck you do that for? I don't know. I think you hit a bump. Car didn't hit no bump. <laughs> Whereas in a Coen Brothers movie, somebody would be like sobbing and like they would be yeah. like, oh, what? Oh, my God. And you would have to see them like go home to their wife and like try to pretend that there, there wasn't blood on their pants, you know? Right. It would be played tragically. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah, I think that's the di- that's the, the difference is that the Coen Brothers both like visually and with the and with the music really sell the tragedy but the performances are often like uh broad and comic in a way like william h macy in 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 right that's what i'm thinking of too right like it's like it's it's tragic but at the same time it's very funny you know whereas tragedy isn't really a, a note you get in tarantino movies very often what what do you think the most 90s part of this movie is Honestly, it's 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 hard because it's a pretty timeless movie, right? The 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 cast though is fairly '90s: John Turturro, John Goodman, John Mahoney. These yeah. are very '90s faces um, who had their their decades in the '90s. And then on top of that, 
you know, the just the idea of a art house, this a, a movie that's this abstract and already getting a nine million dollar budget. I know. I was uh, when you said earlier that was so the budget. I almost made outrageous. that my answer because <laughs> it's yeah. like fucking crazy that they got nine million dollars to make this this movie that they wrote as a joke, basically. You know, yes. Like, just as like a writing exercise for themselves, they got nine million dollars to go make it. Like, are you fucking kidding me? So the last thing we always talk about, Ricky, is uh, obviously it's been 30 years since this movie came out. A lot has changed in the world. Um, do you think there's anything that we've grown out of since this movie came out? Other than the fact that a nine million dollar budget would be given to a movie like this. Um, I think that I, I don't know if you would be able to get away with. Um, and I don't know if it's necessarily that we've grown out of or we've kind of not to be a, like a, a cancel darling or something, but, you know, all of Michael Lerner's anti-Semitism, while they seem of the time, no one is kind of saying out loud like, hey, fascism's on the rise and we shouldn't be anti-Semitic, right? It's just kind of like baked into the world and the fact that they have a Jewish person doing it. And like you said, Sure. Well, this is because like all of these like uh, studio heads and these guys that ran the studios were like Jews and were afraid of being Jewish. And so they like they they became really anti-Semitic like that makes sense if you know that. But I think an audience now would would probably just recoil at uh, all of all of the anti-Semitism in the movie. I think it's funny. Because it's I presented ironically, and it's about. Well, this you just time think anti-Semitism period. is funny in general, right? Is that true? Well, it's about it's about this time period. It's about this world, and um, you know, it's provocative. But I think that if the movie came out now, there'd be like a lot more reviews that were like, and there's all this ugly anti-Semitism. Like I don't that know goes why. unchallenged. Yeah, like I don't know why it's there, and it's very ugly. And it's like, well, it's there because it's a part of that world and the characters living in that world wouldn't challenge it. So yeah. why does the movie need to fucking challenge it? And we don't need, and it's like kind of making an interesting point that there's like nobody there to be performing to except each other. And yet there's, he still feels the need to do it because it's like so ingrained in him. Um, and we don't need to comment on it. I mean, this is actually kind of one of, in a different way, this is my answer to this question also. There's just, this is like a really simple thing, but it really struck me. So the scene where uh, John Turturro meets John Mahoney in the bathroom and John Mahoney says, come see me at my bungalow later this afternoon. And then there's a cut and John Turturro is walking down the street, down the like little, you know, gangway to go to his writer's bungalow. I think I think not in every movie, but in a lot of movies done now, they would somehow do more to communicate to you that it was later the same day. Like they wouldn't just cut to later the same day. It would be like, like even there would be a fucking title card or there would be like, you would just somehow they would want you to know that like, okay, now it's later. Okay, now it's later the same day. Um, Whereas this movie just kind of is a little dreamlike and also just kind of trusts the audience to just put it together. It's really not that difficult. And I mean, maybe I'm being like uncharitable towards movies right now. I know not every movie would do that, but I think this movie trusts the audience to put a lot together. Right. In a way that a movie today would not trust the audience. I think it's kind of like baked into it is just like the right people will get the right stuff out of this. And we're not really concerned about it beyond that, you know? And I think, you know, I think about in, not to go back to Tarantino, but in Tarantino movies, 
when a character is I don't want to talk not not necessarily his use of the n-word in movies in the 90s and the early two you know that's it that's a different story I think but every now and then a character a protagonist in his movies appears like the Cliff Booth character and it's like oh is it like you know why is this character like sexist or something it's like well because the movie the movie takes place in 1969 and he's a 45 year old man right like, and like, what? because people like this are real and people have to deal with them. And, you know, that's just part of the real world, you know? Like, why do we have to view everything with like these, these, these present tense lenses? And like, why does everything have to be like a completely explicit morality tale where like, you know, nobody is included in a, in a work of fiction if they're not being like explicitly endorsed or explicitly condemned. Like maybe they're just like, you know, complicated and they're like mostly a piece of shit, but like they said that one thing that made sense, you know, just like the real world that everybody spends their entire lives in. Like it's not, it's not really that difficult of a concept, but there's just this way people interact with culture now that is very bizarre. It's very fearful and it's very checklist. Right. Well, and it, I just think it comes from not, you caring know, about art and only caring about discourse. And, you know, maybe not really understanding stuff very well yourself. Like you. Yes. Not you, knowing what you like. Not like, knowing what right? you like, like and you not know knowing it. what things mean and like projecting. Like if, if if this is ambiguous to me, that means it's bad. Like, right. no, it, maybe it just means you like don't get it, you know? And like, that's not right. really and, a like, thing you're allowed to say to like people. It's okay you know? to not, you don't need some sort of cultural justification for not getting something. You could just not get it and that's okay. It's just like, maybe not for you, you know, like not everything is for everybody, but like, you know, of course, of course there too much of culture has been for, you know, white people. And it shouldn't be the case that all culture should be pitched at like 35 year old white men. Of course there should be all kinds of people make telling all kinds of stories, but where my problem is where people, well, because what I'm saying is completely what I believe all kinds of people should have the opportunity to tell all kinds of stories but I don't think that every story has to be all kinds of stories. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think think actually the Coen brothers said something very similar in like one of their last press conferences. Because it's like, you know, this is a story about this person who lives in this world. And I think that like, I should get to make this movie that's personal to me and you should get to make this movie that's personal to you. And like everybody, everybody should have that opportunity. I don't think it, it is incumbent on every, and then you fall into this trap too, because it's like you have a responsibility to include all kinds of characters in every story, but at the same time, it's like you're not supposed to write about something you don't know about theoretically. Right. Like you're not supposed to write about the experiences of someone you don't know. So like, what the fuck are you supposed to do? You know, what are you supposed to do? Exactly. The Coen brothers actually said in 2016, when they were uh, doing press for, I believe hail Caesar, someone in the press asked, Oh my God, right away, this fucking article says, unfortunately, in an interview with the Daily Beast, the director sailed right past any good reasons and docked into problematic port. Oh my, it says they docked into problematic port. Anyway, someone asks like, why aren't there more, why isn't there more diversity in the movie Hail Caesar? In the movie Hail Caesar. In the movie about 1930s Hollywood, is that? The- right. One of the, I think Joel Cohen says, it's an absolute absurd misunderstanding of how things get made. You don't sit down and write a story and say, I'm going to write a story that involves four black people, three Jews and a dog, right? That's not how stories get written. If you don't understand that, you don't understand anything about how stories get written and you don't realize that the question you're asking is idiotic. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh my god yeah definitely not an answer you could give to that question today uh like i mean he, he even when he gave it in 2016 he was docking into problematic right, port of course right i did hear he was docking into problematic port when he said that have you ever docked into problematic port chris he only after a couple drinks ricky <laughs> i know it gets shit gets wild and problematic port yeah i think that's it uh Pretty amazing movie, like every Coen Brothers movie. I mean, Almost it's an amazing every Coen movie. Brothers movie. It's just an amazing, fucking fun movie. Coen Brothers movies that, because uh, I, awesome. I, what I want to say is, you get more out of them every time you see them. And the ones that I don't find myself watching over and over again, it's just because I find them too upsetting, and I don't want to watch them again. But it's that's just proof of what well-made movies they are. You know that they are so emotionally affecting to me that I don't want to endure them again. Yeah. They're incredible. You're incredible. I'm incredible. Hey. This conversation has been incredible. Woo. Goodbye.